So for those of you that are here tonight on, for the Sacred Earth Sangha for the first time, how many of you are here for the first time? Oh, great. Okay, welcome. So um, we had our first meeting in July, uh, and I, I was the only one teaching that night because these Sabine and Lynn were both away. And I made the point of saying what we aren't, uh, which is we don't, in this meeting, really talk specifically about activism per se, but we provide a space for activists and we provide uh, a place of practice to uh, expand our ability to hold everything we need to hold, to be more effective activists. For those of you that choose to be activists in whatever way that is. And so we've been spending the last five months, four months, six months, whatever it is, uh, working with the practice on the five ele four elements, uh, the Buddhist practice on the four elements, um, doing one element a month. And we're, we've arrived at the end of the elements as at this point, this month which is the air element, um, and we'll talk a bit about that later. I think, I think well, let's spend like yeah. three minutes like getting to know each other, right. your neighbors, talk to yeah. someone that you don't know, um, yeah. really want to create a song, sense of sangha here in your insight, in particular around environmental activism is so good. You know, we're all sitting in summer screen absorbing all these news, and I think the reason we write the sangha here is for us to be together and really going through this together. So say hi, really get up. Say hi to somebody, Some, you, don't somebody you don't know. Yeah. Hi. So I'm John. This is Lynn, just in case you didn't realize that. And um, we're just going to start with a very short sit before we get into the evening a little bit more. Taking a moment to settle into your chair, settle into your posture. And as was already pointed out, we have sound to work with tonight. So allowing awareness to rest in this sound, the sound of the water element making contact with the earth element to be specific. And of course the air element is always present as we breathe. Allowing some gratitude to Arise in awareness, gratitude for this time that you've given yourself, gratitude for this space, gratitude for everyone that's here, putting each other in practice, and gratitude for each breath, which is not only a gift of life, but an opportunity to be fully present. So we start with um, every gathering with um, a reverence, a sense of reverence and respect um, by offering a native land acknowledgement. So the land we are on and 
is um, stood by the Lenape tribe, native tribe for a couple of for a long time. Um, they call this Manhattan Manhattan, means um, hilly island, and they named the Hudson River Shatumut, uh, means that the river that flows both ways between the north and south tides um, of the Atlantic Oceans. And they have um, stewarded the lands for many, many generations with very abundance in wildlife and fish and oysters and so forth. So we start the honoring of the native history because it's important to um, honor the people who are on this land as a step forward of healing between the land and the people, um, especially in light of the climate crisis that we're facing today. Um, we also want to acknowledge the inside meditation tradition has been stewarded by Asian practitioners for the last couple um, thousand years in India, Korea, Japan, Tibet, China, and, and other countries, and Southeast Asian countries um, that has been passed down originally orally and then written through written words and has been carefully um, preserved and um, stewarded over all these years and then came to the West through Western teachers in recent century. So we acknowledge um, all the lineage that this comes from. And I think in particular in facing the climate crisis today that it's important to acknowledge lineage and our place in time because it place us in time and space in the universe to know that we're not facing these crises um, by ourselves. It's that we're not separate and alone, that we come from a long continuum of consciousness um, that carry within us a lot of wisdom and ingenuity and creativity just by our survival and existence of being here today. So I think tuning into that always gives me a lot of courage um, and optimism as we are holding this crisis in our heart. The air element um, is a really fascinating one. Um, the early, in the Greek early philosophy, the word for spirit is pneuma, uh, which means kind of air, like it's kind of like pneumonia, like that root word, pneuma. Um, so air is tied to spirit. Um, so many words like inspiration, conspire, all this is like breathing, which is um, really what we're doing when we meditate is we're breathing and come in contact with our spirits and our presence through breathing and this exchanging of air. Um, so, and it's also the element that's invisible has a mysterious quality to it. Um, a, lot of, a lot of qualities that are related to spirits are invisible. Silence, time, um, presence. And so all these qualities that are related to spirits are invisible and in our modern time, we tend to emphasize on the material world that the visible world. And a lot of time what we, that emphasis on visible world make us very easily disconnected to our invisible spiritual world. And one of the, um, a lot of my kind of thinking around this element has come from John O'Donohue's book on the four elements. And he says that one of the indicator of poverty in a culture, in fact, is how its relationship to the invisible. How much do they respect the invisible? And you could argue that in our current culture, we don't respect the invisible and completely only value the visible. Um, so I think this element is really interesting to work with because it's the most mysterious and is with us literally wherever we are, when, wherever we sit down and connect with it. So um, it's, to me, it's a very powerful element to practice with. And it's also one of the 
of the four elements, uh, one interesting aspect he talks about is the most hospitable element. So if you think about earth, earth is very substantial, solid, but it's very hard to come into earth. It already has its own solidity and form. And water flows, water kind of flows and remains in itself. And then fire allows things to come in, but it consumes it and reduces it to its essence. So the air, air quality, in his view, is the most generous because it flows through everything and yet allow things to emerge, to let it be whatever it is. So it has a very generous quality to it. Um, and it gives space. It's really air that gives space, and space gives to form. So, you know, in the Zen tradition, we talk a lot about form and formless, and I think with the air is where we could play with that a lot of the form and formless. And air is also within air and space, like coming into tonight's topic, the one of the best animal guides is birds. They are the they are the they're the animals that really um, kind of embody of that sense of freedom and perspective of being in the air and flying in the air. And it's a deep human desire, um, an ancient human desire to have that sense of freedom and perspective. So I thought I would um, end this reflection with a poem by Joe Haro, who is the Native American um, poet that just recently been named the US um, Poet Laureate. Um, is the first Native American poet that be named that honor. So I, I'm sure you guys are all familiar with her. I'm, she's new to me, and I feel like I found a great treasure. Um, it's called the Eagle Poem. To pray, you open your whole self. To sky, to earth, to sun, to moon. To hold one whole voice that is you and know that there is more that you can see, can hear, can know except in moments, steadily growing, and in languages that aren't always sound, but other circles of motion. Like eagle that Sunday morning over Salt River, circle in blue sky, in wind, swept our hearts clean with sacred wings. We see you, see ourselves, and know that we must take the utmost care and kindness in all things. Breathe in, knowing that we are made of all this, and breathe, knowing we're truly blessed because we were born and die soon within a true circle of motion, like eagle rounding out the morning inside us. We pray that it will be done in beauty, in beauty. Five or so minutes with this element. Just allowing the eyes to close if you're comfortable with that. And really take in what's going on as we breathe. The air that we sadly take for granted is actually quite a fragile system. And yet, here we are, being supported by this fragility. They've determined that it takes two centuries, 2,000 years, sorry, 20 centuries, 2,000 years, for the whole cycle of air to replenish itself. So that means that the air that we're currently breathing 
some aspect of it, some percentage of that was also breathed by potentially the Buddha, but certainly other historical figures of note, good and bad. So we're basically sharing that same air as we breathe. Knowing, of course, as we breathe in, we're supporting our life as we breathe out. We support other lives, the lives of plants. And then we can think about the forests of the world, which are often referred to as the lungs of the world. It's reflecting on both how they are being destroyed, but at the same time, through a lot of activism, they are being restored as well. So in a sense, while each of us is a tree for the plants, producing carbon dioxide as we breathe, the plants are the trees are there for us, producing oxygen for us to breathe. It's also ironic to reflect on the fact that this balance of CO2 to O2 is so fragile. And while the air element is invisible, and also reflect on the force of the air element, the wind element, the wind aspect of the air element. the act of breathing itself is the air element. Of course, it's the first element that we experience when we're born. We take our first breath. It's the first element that leaves us when we take our last breath. And so when the bell rings, we're going to be transitioning from this short practice to Steve's presentation. So some of you may want to shift your position in order to see the screen.
turn off some lights, and we'll hear from Steve. And for those who may not be familiar with Steve, Steve Roylands is our Sangha member, a birder, lifelong birder. He has been birding since he's 10, and he has gone all over the place from North America to South America to see the birds, and he presented this presentation back in September, and I, we have so much feedback, good feedback from everybody who heard it that it was demand that we have to show this. So really in a treat. I didn't get to hear it, so I'm really excited. Thank you, Lynn, John, for asking me to do this. Um, I gave this talk on the impact of climate change on birds and other species at New York Insights Climate Summit in September. Since then, two alarming major studies on birds and the environment have come out. One from the Cornell Lab of Ornithology and the other from the National Audubon Society. Cornell found that in the last 50 years, bird populations in North America have dropped by 29%. This is almost 3 billion birds. National Audubon found that two-thirds of America's birds are threatened with extinction from climate change. However, the report also concluded that if we humans could keep the rise in temperature to one and a half degrees Celsius, we could save about 76% of them. This means that, credibly, almost a quarter are still doomed to extinction. If the temperature rises three degrees, the extinction rate would be catastrophic. New York Insight's climate summit was called Right Action in the Anthropocene, a Buddhist response to global warming. Anthropocene is a relatively recent entry into the scientific lexicon. It's defined as relating to or denoting the current geological age, viewed as the period during which human activity has been the dominant influence on climate and the environment. There is debate as to when the Anthropocene began. Some say it started with the birth of agriculture some 12,000 years ago. Others argue it began with the first detonation of the atomic bomb. What cannot be argued is that we humans have arrived and that we humans have changed everything. When Regina Valdez, the organizer of the summit, asked me to give this talk, she sent me on what turned out to be a very uneasy journey. This was hard to write. I like to think of, my, of myself as someone who is aware, but going deep into this made me wonder. Some of us have removed the blinders. Some of us have accepted the fact that we have been in denial. Some of us woke up. The rest of us need to join them. But waking up and learning about what we now know and how dire the situation is, one can fall into despair. Nothing can be done, and what we can do is far too little and far too late. Despair makes each of us feel alone. But what can move us out of despair and into action is what our Buddhist practice teaches us. We are not alone. Through opening to grief felt for the suffering of other beings, the path naturally opens to compassion, karuna, which can then move us together to wise action. Although life on this planet is threatened, and the threat will no doubt worsen, action can be taken that can mitigate the tragedy, so we must act. I am a birder and a retired New York City public school science teacher. Some of this presentation is personal, how birds brought me to nature, and some of it is science data. But all of it is about non-separation, about life with no boundaries. This is a sparrow, relatively nondescript compared to other birds. Sparrows are referred to as LBJs by birders, little brown jobs. Sometimes identifying a species can be tricky. Though not much to look at, this one has a poetic name. Dusky Seaside Sparrow. It was found in natural salt marshes of Merritt Island and along St. John's River in Florida 
the island was flooded to reduce the mosquito population around the Kennedy Space Center. The marshes were drained to facilitate highway construction. The nesting grounds were decimated. The population plummeted. Pollution and pesticides further diminished its numbers to just six individuals in 1979. All males. The last sighted female was in 1975. The last known individual died June 17, 1987. Scientists talk about background extinction. Over hundreds of thousands to millions of years, a species evolves into existence and then goes extinct for a variety of reasons. Natural climate change, competition with other species, and so on. But most of these extinctions take time, geologic time, over hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years, outside of catastrophic events like asteroids and massive volcanoes, background extinction is the normal extinction rate, and it is imperceptible. Then we humans came along. We brought habitat loss, introduction of invasive species, and of course, global warming. Scientists estimate that the extinction rate today could be as high as 1,000 times the normal extinction rate. What happened to the dusky seaside sparrow was not imperceptible. It was sudden and emphatic. It was extinction by brute force. Although in 1987 climate change had little to do with its extinction, global warming is expected to be a major player in habitat destruction. I will come back to the dusky seaside sparrow. I lived a privileged childhood. I spent my formative years in farm country in the outskirts of Boise, Idaho, surrounded by the Rocky Mountains. There were irrigation ditches, streams, and a river, pastures, fields, and forests, minnows, fish, birds, snakes, and a horse to ride. On good summer days, I would leave in the morning with a paper bag lunch, a thermos of water, and the admonition to be home for dinner. Then when I was 10, we moved to Midstate, New York. One morning, I looked out my bedroom window and saw this sitting on a branch. A couple of minutes later, this showed up. You know them, Northern Cardinal and Blue Jay. I was stunned. I thought you found birds like these only in Amazon rainforests. There are great birds out west, I just hadn't noticed them. I learned jays and cardinals like sunflower seeds, so with makeshift bird feeders, the back patio off our living room became a feeding station for several species, and I could watch for hours. I found myself an Audubon bird guide and a cheap pair of opera glasses. I was hooked. One winter day, a flock of about 50 of these showed up. My Audubon guide informed me they were evening grosbeaks and included a migration map. They breed farther north and migrate south in winter looking for food. I was hungry to know more about them and about birds in general, but that's all the guide told me about them. Remember, this was the year 33 BG, before Google. <laughs> oh, and that they loved sunflower seeds. I was a prodigious provider. The next-door neighbors had been, had been their feeding station for years, but they migrated to mine. My supply overflowed. I heard a rumor that the neighbors were a little miffed. The birds were tame, noisy, and up close. I watched them for hours, and each year when the call of the wild urged them to move on to the breeding grounds, I felt an emptiness. The evening grosbeak population is rapidly declining. Partners in Flight, a network of over 100 conservation organizations, has listed the evening grosbeak as experiencing the steepest decline since 1970 of all land birds in the continental U.S. and Canada, 92%. It has almost disappeared in the east. 
Possible explanations include tar sands exploitation in Canada, which has destroyed large swaths of the boreal breeding grounds. Gasoline from the source produces 15% more carbon emissions than conventional oil. Other causes could be pesticides and forest management practices that favor fast-growing softwood trees like pines for paper and wood products, rather than slower-growing seed-producing hardwoods such as maple and box elder. If global warming continues at its current rate, forcing the bird to migrate even further north in the spring, its breeding habitat could be reduced to 2% of what it once was. One beautiful day, I hopped on my bike. In my pack were my binocs, the bird guide, and some snacks. I rode a couple miles to a river and walked slowly and quietly to the riverbank and sat down. I sat quiet and still and listened to the rush of the river and the wind and the leaves as if for the first time. The animals and birds ignored me. They ventured up close. I was invisible. I felt I had entered an Eden. I was a part of this too. Then I heard a rattling call I had never heard and looked up. I saw this. I quickly thumbed through my guide, belted kingfisher. It was sitting on a branch overhanging the river. It flew back and forth from branch to branch and then suddenly it dove into the river and caught a fish. I felt I had witnessed something secret. Something wonderful no human had witnessed. I sat there all afternoon, part of it all. This is the way things are. Riding home, I didn't know the impact that experience would have on me. I just thought it was cool and couldn't wait to tell folks what I had seen. What I didn't know was that I was now addicted to being alone in the woods, from which there is no recovery. <laughs> Nor did I know there was a word for that experience. Peace. We sit together, the mountain and me, until only the mountain remains. Lipo. The belted kingfisher population has declined 53%, according to the North American Breeding Survey. They rate an 11 out of 20 on the Continental Concern Score. Partners in Flight lists them as a common bird in steep decline. I taught science to several hundred third, fourth, and fifth graders every week at a school in Manhattan. I inserted into the third grade curriculum a unit on birding and introduced birding to 2,000 and more kids. They learned how to use field guides and binoculars. They learned how to be in nature, slow and quiet. They learned how to be invisible. We birded the playground during class time in May migration season, and I took the birding club to Central Park after school. I got them hooked. Believe it or not, in a school playground in, Manha in a Manhattan neighborhood, not too far from here, the kids saw a variety of migrating songbirds called warblers. Many of these species fly from as far away as Central and South America. American Red Start, Canada Warbler, Magnolia Warbler, Yellow Warbler, Black-throated blue warbler, Blackburnian warbler, bay-breasted warbler, black and white warbler, common yellowthroat, yellow-rumped warbler, chestnut-sided warbler, northern parallel. Black-throated green warbler, Wilson's warbler, and other birds such as scarlet tanagers, 
and Baltimore Orioles. On one birding trip to Central Park, one little girl with long, dark hair down below the middle of her back told me, even though she lived only three subway stops away, that she had never been there. She wanted nothing to do with binoculars or birds. The only thing she wanted to do was run ahead, find a grassy slope, lie on her back, and roll down it, over and over again. I let her. Her body barely contained the joy. Some say there is a condition called nature deficit disorder that affects both children and adults, but especially children. It is not officially recognized in any psychological annals, but I believe it exists. Symptoms include attention disorders, obesity, anxiety, and depression. And with adults, an inadequate response to the climate crisis. I have a therapy for nature deficit disorder. Fortunately for that little long-haired girl, so did she. Mary Oliver wrote, if you suddenly and unexpectedly feel joy, don't hesitate, give in to it. I imagine that little girl's mother, later that evening, brushing and wondering how all those twigs got entangled in her daughter's hair. I taught evolution to the fourth graders. In order to help them begin to wrap their minds around the concept of geologic time, something I still can't do, I devised this lesson. I measured the length of my arm span, 67 inches. Life is estimated to have begun about 4.3 billion years ago. The tip of this finger represents then. The tip of this one represents now. 4.3 billion divided by 67 equals a bit more than 64 million years per inch. 1 billion divided by 64 million years per inch equals about 15 and a half inches. So, 1 billion, 2 billion, 3 billion, 4 billion. That leaves roughly four and a half inches for the last 300 million years. That's the three part of 4.3 billion. Four and a half inches is the middle of my palm. So one inch from the tip of my finger represents about 65 million years ago, the time an asteroid hit the Earth and wiped out the dinosaurs. I then took a nail file and swiped the tip of the nail of the long finger three or four times. That, I said, what I filed off represents about how long we humans, Homo sapiens, have been here. About 200,000 years, or about three thousandths of an inch. Their jaws dropped. What I didn't tell them was that early human ancestors began to hunt about two million years ago, and that we humans started cutting down trees to grow food about 12,000 years ago. Since then, the Earth has lost more than half her trees, according to an international study, and we have hunted to extinction the woolly mammoth, the Tasmanian tiger, the great auk, the passenger pinion, pigeon, the Falkland Island wolf, the Zanzibar leopard, the Caribbean monk seal, the Carolina parakeet, the Atlas Bear, the Two-Lake Wallaby, the Sea Mink, Ubal Hartbeast, Stellar Sea Cow, and more. Today, there are about 7.7 .7 billion of us. By 2050, the estimate is 10 billion, and we are rapacious. Many of the warblers the children saw on their playground winter in Central and South America. In 2010, Belize had 63% of remaining forest cover. Costa Rica, 46%. Panama, 45%. Honduras, 41%. Guatemala, 37%. Nicaragua, 29%. And El Salvador, 21%. And in South America, we know deforestation is happening at an alarming rate. 
It is literally burning. This is from a 2017 article in Rainforests in the Garden, Guardian. Every year, about 45 million acres of forest, I changed hectares to acres. An area the size of England and Wales is felled. In just 40 years, possibly two and a half billion acres of forest, the equivalent of Europe, has gone. Half the world's rainforests have been raised in a century. And the latest satellite analysis shows that in the last 15 years, new hotspots have emerged from Cambodia to Liberia. At current rates, they will vanish altogether in 100 years. Scientists estimate that the climate is changing at least 20 times faster than any other time in the last 2 million years. The warming climate is predicted to shift the timing and migration patterns of many of these bird species. It is already happening. We are witnessing earlier springs and later autumns all over the world. And scientists have found that, in response, some species are already migrating earlier in the spring and later in the fall. This could potentially put birds out of sync with their food and habitat resources. For example, birds could arrive earlier than the emerging insect and plant populations are abundant enough to support them. After looking at the data concerning many of these migrants, the National Audubon Society's recent report predicts that 389 North American bird species are vulnerable to extinction due to climate change. At least 40%, or about 4,000 bird species, have declining populations worldwide. A combination of causes contribute to this figure, but climate change is no small player. The International Union for the Conservation of Nature, or IUCN's Red List, as of 2017, looks at almost 1,500 bird species as globally threatened with extinction. Scientists talk of birds as being the canary in the coal mine when it comes to climate change. Birds are easily studied for a variety of reasons, but a safe conclusion can be made. What is happening to birds is what will happen to other species in their not too distant future. According to the IUCN, not just 14% of birds worldwide are threatened with extinction, but 40% of amphibians, 25% of mammals, 34% of conifers, 30% of sharks and rays, 33% of coral reefs, and 27% of selected crustaceans. It is frightening to consider that these figures are probably underestimated because we don't know what we don't know. Scientists are continually finding ways not seen that life on this planet is threatened. This can't be completely and accurately predicted. This may just be the tip of the iceberg. But, it is not too late to respond and mitigate some of the more drastic consequences. So what might be positive mitigation for a specific bird species can also be positive mitigation on a much larger scale. For a couple of minutes, I would like to digress, kind of go off topic, find some stillness together. On a silent meditation retreat some years ago, I got this idea. I was going to begin and end each of my science classes with a quiet, still meditation for a couple of minutes. So I went online and I bought this. This is a Tibetan singing bowl. I thought, the bigger the better. Remember, these are eight, nine, and ten-year-olds. This was a bit before the terms mindfulness and meditation were introduced into the lexicon of public schools, and I didn't want to make any parents nervous, so I made up a name for it, the Super Concentration Bowl. <laughs> parents like to see their children concentrating. I changed my classroom. Two thousand and more school children have meditated, or concentrated, to the sound of this bowl. So, I would like you to pretend for the next minute or so that you are eight years old. As I turned out the light, it went something like this. Sit tall and relaxed. If you wish, you can close your eyes and take two or three quiet breaths. 
the kind you know that works best to help you be still. So still that if someone were to see you, they would have to ask, is that a child or a beautiful breathing statue? Still body. Quiet mind. Wise heart. Kind, happy kid. And I would invite them, if they wished, to put their hands over their hearts and whisper after me. Still body. Still body. Quiet mind. Wise heart. Then I would say, when I ring the chime, bring your full attention, attention and awareness to me as you open your eyes. This evening, though, I want to use the super concentration bowl for another reason. I want to ring it out for the birds that we humans have pushed into extinction and for those that are nearing extinction. I want to come back to the dusky seaside sparrow. There are two main things birders want when birding. To identify the species and see a bird they have never seen before. When I read that the last dusky seaside sparrow had died, my first thought was, damn, I'll never see that bird. Then I paused and became still, and I remembered my afternoon at the river and watching the belted kingfisher catch a fish, and I remembered what it felt like to be invisible, to know peace. We sat together, the mountain and me, and my heart sank. It sank to a place it had never been, a place I didn't know existed. It was an abyss, an abyss in the heart. No one will ever hear this little creature sing in the wild again. No one. Five males remained in captivity in 1979, but I sometimes imagine one last male, undiscovered in the wild, singing in the spring, singing, singing his heart out, day after day, with increasing desperation, singing to find her, his mate, singing with a longing to fulfill his evolutionary destiny. But she never comes. Scientists talk of the inappropriateness of anthropomorphizing other animal species attributing to them with what we consider to be human feelings. How do we know what these other creatures feel, they ask. But with our evolutionary pasts so intertwined, and their instincts to live and survive seemingly just as strong as ours, the question, I believe, is not how do we know what they feel, but how could we not? We have all witnessed a mother cat crying for her lost kittens. Or maybe you have seen a cow running after her calf as it is carted away in the back of a truck. They may lack what we call human self-awareness, but that, I strongly suspect, may be the only difference. All beings have the right to know, deserve to know, what it is to be at peace to know peace, even if only for a few moments. We all want an end to suffering. So let all of us who know that to practice compassion is to awaken, 
practice with all our hearts. Let us awaken to the suffering of all beings. Awaken to a life with no boundaries. Let us, as we touch the infinite depth of the present moment, know that all we have is now. Thus shall you think of all this fleeting world, a star at dawn, a bubble in the stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a phantom, and a dream. Diamond Sutra. So, still body, quiet mind, wise heart, kind, happy kid. May the sound of the singing bowl sing in remembrance of the dusky seaside sparrow. May it live in the abyss in our hearts, a small being that once shared this earth with us, a being that had no defense against human invention. And Spix's macaw. Ivory-billed woodpecker. Passenger pigeon. Carolina parakeet. Hawaiian bishops ooh. Great Auk. And several hundred more. And those who are nearing extinction. Tufted Puffin. Philippine Eagle. Araripe Mannequin. and a thousand more. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.